If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them up to Titus chapter 2. I will be reading Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I will be reading from the King James Version. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. I'm privileged to be with you this morning. Appreciate your presence in being here, especially if you're visiting with us. We're glad that you're here and would invite you back at every opportunity that we have. God's grace truly is amazing. And that's what I've entitled the sermon this morning, God's Amazing Grace. And of course, uh, in conjunction with uh, Brother Carl, we have built this sermon around the words of this song that we're singing to each other and to God. And we learn that when we do that singing, when we sing uh, in uh, uh, the corporate worship, sing songs such as what Newton wrote here, we, uh, we teach and we admonish. We're saying things that God wants us to understand and wants us to learn and wants us to teach other people. We see that. Paul made that statement in Colossians 3, verse 16. So when we sing, we want to sing scriptural songs. When we pray, we want to pray scriptural thoughts. When we preach, we want to preach scriptural doctrines. And we want to do the same thing when we teach. When writing to Titus, Paul commanded him to teach sound doctrine. Those things which constituted Sound doctrine. Now, sound means to be healthy. If we're sound of mind, we're healthy in our minds. If we're sound in our physical beings, that means our body is healthy. It is exactly what we want it to be. Now, when we talk about sound, that also can make reference to our spiritual health. God has the message that allows us to have a sound spiritual body so to speak. We want to be healthy spiritually. We want to be sound when it comes to our, uh, our lives in eternity. There's going to be a place in eternity where we don't want to be. There is going to be that section or that area or wh- however God has designed it where people will be who have not been sound in their spiritual lives in the physical world. And that's a place of punishment. I want us to think about God's amazing grace this morning. And I want us to begin with this idea, and this is our first point, that God's grace is sound. When we read the uh, verses to this song, that wonderful sound Newton wrote about, that beautiful sound of God's grace, well, exactly what did he mean? Well, I don't know exactly what was on uh, Newton's mind when he wrote that. I I have an idea of what was on his mind, but as far as the words that he chose and the meaning to him, 
I'm not exactly sure, but when we look at that and we hear the sound of God's amazing grace, can we hear God's amazing grace? I don't know that we can necessarily hear it. One day we will hear the result of it if we've been faithful, enter now into uh, my kingdom. When we've been found to be faithful, God will usher us in. We'll hear that sound. But what makes God's saving grace, His amazing grace sound? Well, it is sound because of that very reason. It saves us. It is the foundational support. It is the beginning of our salvation. God had to want to save us before we could be saved. Grace is unmerited favor. It's an undeserving love that God has for us, and that is the beginning point of our salvation. In his song, Newton begins with the fact that God's grace can save even the most wretched individual. Brother Carl mentioned the Apostle Paul. While he lived under the name Saul, he was a murderer. He murdered Christians. He was a hater of Christ. He tried to destroy the very church for which he gave his life. But what did God's grace lead him to be? It led him to be a Christian through the obedience that he was taught from the preacher Ananias. Now Satan does not want us to believe that. He wants us to remain blind. When we access God's loving grace, we go from blindness to sight. We go from lostness to salvation. Now Satan does not want us to believe that. He does not want us to understand that God can save us. He wants us to say, No one can save me. I'm too wicked. I've done too many terrible things in my life. Have you ever heard someone say that? I've heard that a lot. I can't be saved because of the life I once led. Satan wants us to believe that. Why? Because he's a liar and he's the father of all liars. John 8, 44. Even when he determines though he cannot convince most people that God is powerless to save us, he wants to dilute the message. He wants to take something away from God's amazing grace so we cannot access it. Paul warned those in Corinth of the tactics of Satan. Open your Bible, 2 Corinthians 11. We're going to notice verses 13 and 14. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 13, Paul said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. Now he was talking about the actions of, of those men who came in and troubled Corinth. He said, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They came in telling people, well, we're apostles of Christ. Follow after us. Listen to our message. He said, in no marvel, it's not shocking that those false apostles would come in and teach that. Why? Because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is, not, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. God's amazing grace is sound. But Satan wants us to dilute it. He wants to convince us that any method of gaining God's grace is just as good as God's own method. That's what Paul was talking about. You had these false apostles coming into Corinth, They were stating that they were apostles. They were delivering a message that was not sound and people were following it. 
Satan was being successful. Paul didn't want that. God doesn't want that. And here's the problem with Satan's trickery. What's the end result? Paul said it, didn't he? Damnation. Eternal damnation. That's the end result for those who fall for it, those who are taken in, and also those who propagate it. God's amazing grace is sound. It is sound because it saves. It has that potential. Now God won't force that upon us, but it has the potential of salvation. But who does it save? What's the whole purpose of God's amazing grace? If we're going to talk about His amazing grace, we have to at some point understand why it has even been offered to us. It saves those who have strayed from God. Now we can stray from God in a, in a multitude of ways. Someone can stray from God simply by coming into the age of accountability and living like Brother Carl said that Newton lived, the great blasphemer. Or perhaps someone can obey the gospel and then they leave Christ and they stray from Him in that way. So the gospel, God's grace, who sent the gospel, saves those who have strayed. If we let it do that. Now, when we look at the words Newton wrote, he says that God's grace taught us fear. Well, exactly what was he talking about? What Newton is referencing here, referencing here is godly reverence. Not fear of someone who's going to be unjust, someone who's going to mistreat us. God's grace is the foundation of our reverence for Him. Because of God's amazing grace, we learned that reverence. But how did we learn it? Well, obviously we learned it through the message. But notice what John said, 1 John 4, verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. We learn reverence and honor for God because of what He's done for us. When we look at the actions of the world and the things that have taken place... We can even go back to that very small period of time in this world when Christ walked upon the earth and He brought this message of grace. And we look to that last week of His life where He was particularly mistreated. And we see as He has been hung on the cross, the people who murdered Him are walking by making fun of Him, and we can begin to understand God's grace a little better and what it has done for us. We didn't deserve God's grace. The people that were at the cross at that time, did they deserve God's grace? They murdered His very Son. His only begotten Son, His very special and unique, one of a kind, only begotten Son. But we see because of that great grace exactly how important it is. He still extended it. We learn that reverence because of what He has done for us. We ought to reverence someone like that, shouldn't we? We reverence our parents as they bring us up and rear us in this life. And we first learn that through what they did for us. Now as we grow and we mature, we begin to reverence and honor them simply because of who they are and the kind of person that they are. But we first learned it through their love and their care for us. Not only is our reverence for God learned and and based in His grace, 
but it also relieves the fear of damnation. We learned fear, but then we are relieved from that fear. That's what the pass or that's what the, the verse of the song says, right? So what do we have here? We have fear on one end and fear on the other. Well, what we really have is reverence for God, and because of that reverence, because of that grace that He has extended to us, our fears of being lost can be relieved. We can know that we know we're saved. That's what John said, right? We better know that we're saved, or maybe we need to investigate how we went about being saved. Maybe we didn't do it properly according to what the Bible says. It relieves our fear because we accept His grace through obedience. See, that's a key point, isn't it? When we look at God's amazing grace, we have to understand how it's accessed. Those who have strayed from the side of God, they have good reason to fear, don't they? See, when we stray from God, we cannot be relieved of that fear. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews 10.31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now we have a great contrast within the Bible in a lot of different areas concerning a whole lot of different topics. Notice I said a vast contrast, no contradiction. When we turn over to John 14 and we begin reading with verse 1, our Lord comforting His disciples because of His impending departure. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, He said, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And you know, and you know whither I go and the way you know. Now yesterday, we had a memorial service for Sister Sandra's brother-in-law. Brother Ron read from this passage. That's a very comforting passage, isn't it? When we know that we have lived in this life the way God expects us to live, we've been obedient to the laws that He has handed down to us, it is a comforting thing to know where we will be when this life is over. Now notice the contrast. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because the person that does that has ignored God's amazing grace. They have not accepted it. The person who longs for one of those mansions, one of those rooms, plenty of room for everyone, if it were not so, Christ would have told us if it was limited See, that person has accepted God's grace according to what God has said. According to God's plan. We know the way out of our sins because Jesus taught us the way out of our sins, right? That's what He said, wasn't it? And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. He says, don't be concerned, don't be troubled. You believe in God and I know you believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place I'm going to come back and get you and I'm going to take you where I am and you know how to get there and you know where it is. Well, why is it that we know how to get there? Has God ever required anything from His creation that He didn't first instruct us how to attain? No, He hasn't. 
God wants to extend grace. But He's told us how we accept that. Notice the things Jesus said. I'm going to quote from Jesus, or I'm going to read His words. Jesus said, John 8, 24, You shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. You must believe that He is who He said He was. That He is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. That His message is a heavenly message. That His message is an eternal message. That His message impacts our very souls. We have to believe that. That's the beginning of accessing God's grace. God loved us. He didn't have to love us. He probably shouldn't have loved us according to our way of thinking, right? But He did offer that grace. And we better believe that. Christ demanded, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We have to have belief, we have to have repentance. He said, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, He said, when, if you will confess My name before the Father, He said, I'll, or before men, He said, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven. But the contrast to that is, if you deny me before men, if you do not acknowledge that He is who you believe He is, if you do not repent of sins, then we're not going to confess Him. He said, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. These are the words of Christ, not the words of some man. He described to us how to be saved. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 15 and 16. And then he made sure for us to understand that in this life, as we live the Christian life, sometimes it's going to be difficult. Sometimes we're going to be tested and tried and, and things are going to happen that, that Satan uses against us to throw us off track. And notice what he said, Matthew 10, 23. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. We have to endure to the end. It doesn't stop at obedience. It doesn't stop at initial obedience being added into the Lord's church. We have to endure to the end. From the first couple onward, the world had a problem with sin. And God's amazing grace was extended. I want us to notice, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul described them in this way. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What does sin do to us? It murders us. It murders us. It kills us. It takes the very life out of us. And we're talking about spiritual life. He continued his thought into verse 5 reminding them how they were regained to God. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. Do we believe that? We better believe it. But are we saved by grace alone? Well, if we're saved by grace alone, if we're saved by the mere fact that God extended, extended to us unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, then we just ignored the statements that Jesus made. That is the beginning of salvation. And then we follow these steps that Jesus has placed before us and we can walk right into salvation. I think we ought to pay close attention to our former selves. 
we ought to be able to look back and notice from where we came and where we don't want to return, but we need to look forward and allow that to encourage us. The strain for those who stray, there's no hope, there's no life, and there is no salvation. But we want that, right? There's no future if we stray. When we stray from God, it brings eternal damnation. Look, eternal doesn't stop. We're going to notice that in a few moments. Eternal death is more lethal than physical death. In this life, physical death, when it comes, it comes normally, fairly quickly, and then it's over. But then eternal life begins. And if we go into the next realm unprepared, that death never ends. When we realize the sins of this world separate us from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, we need to cling on to those commandments that Jesus has given us. We need to become what He wants us to become. We need to guard ourselves against being deceived because that's what Satan does. Again, Paul reminded Timothy to maintain his perseverance. Notice, or rather Titus, notice uh, Titus 3 verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. One deception that we will face in this life that Satan tries to deliver to every single person when, they think, when he believes that they're trying to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants us to understand or misunderstand the process through which we prevent straying. He doesn't want us to remain in access, constant access with the amazing grace of God. God's grace, our personal faith and obedience is what brings eternal life. And you can't separate the two. Not if we're going to have eternal life. They're not independent of each other. There's not a single account in the whole of the Bible where any individual who was saved did not do something personally to gain that salvation. Not one account where that's the case. It's not all up to God, but it's certainly not all up to us. We have to have the two. That's what makes God's amazing grace so amazing. He had to have a willingness to save us. First Peter or First Timothy two verse four, and we have to have a willingness to be saved. Second Peter two verse ten. Or second Peter one verse ten. God's amazing grace is sound. And we're going to notice in just a moment following these next three verses, that God's amazing grace secures us.